Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, February 11, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, shall we say Spotify, and all the usual places. My guests today for our 26th episode are Paul Somerville, an old friend, and Eric Protzer, a new friend, um, who's co-written a book with Paul. The name of their book, and it's getting a lot of attention, is Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back disenchanted voters. And let me give you a little bit of background on on both of our authors today. Paul Somerville is an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria's Gustafson School of Business. He has a PhD from the University of Tokyo, which I find quite interesting, and a 20-year career in finance. He ran for Canadian Parliament twice, co-founded the technology firm LimeSpot, and served on the board of the Canada Revenue Agency. Eric Protzer is a research fellow at Harvard University's Growth Lab, and maybe, Eric, you can tell us more about the Growth Lab later. He has a master's degree from MIT in technology and public policy and has advised governments such as Western Australia, which is a country of its own, Jordan, and Colombia. So, Paul and Eric, welcome to the Hale Report today. Well, thank you so much. We're so pleased to be here. Absolutely. Well, tell us how the idea for this book came to be and how you two know each other and came to write it together. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Paul uh, tells the story of how we met uh, better than me, I, uh, but it's, I, I don't know. Paul, do you want to dive into that one? So I was uh, in, in the summer of 2011, I was walking out of a Starbucks uh, in a local uh, neighborhood uh, in Victoria and there's three exits, and I went out the back exit. Uh, I could have easily picked the other two. And there was this young guy uh, sitting uh, at one of the tables there having lunch. And um, I noticed that he worked in the local uh, supermarket, and he was eating one of their, what I thought was very expensive chickens. And I couldn't, I couldn't resist to say, what are you doing eating this really expensive chicken? Because even I wouldn't buy it, you know? And he looked at me and he said, well, I get a 75% discount. And a minute later, I found out he was on his way to Papua New Guinea or something in six months on a, on, a, on a scholarship to build villages and toilets. And he was coming back to study economics. And I said, well, before you destroy your mind studying economics, you must read a book by Eric Bonhoeffer uh, called The Origin of Wealth and learn about complexity economics that most of what economists tell you is nonsense. Uh, and that started a wonderful relationship. Um, when I ran for parliament in 2012, he campaigned with me and I introduced him to Justin Trudeau. Um, he was our first intern uh, at LimeSpot in the summer of 2013 and ended up actually writing the patent that was uh, accepted in the United States. Um, he kept in touch with me. Uh, every year he came back to Vancouver Island to see his mom. Uh, when he was away at school, we would, we would meet. Uh, and in 2016, I wrote a reference letter for him uh, for a full scholarship at MIT to do a master's degree. And uh, in, uh, in January 2019, he told me he was graduating uh, and he was joining the Harvard Growth Lab. Uh, and I had had in my mind for 30 years uh, 
the idea of writing a book that tried to explain uh, why people can be successful, why social democracies can be successful. What are the ingredients? And I twin the idea of equal opportunity and uh, unequal outcomes. Uh, and I said to Eric, uh, I think I'd like to try to write this book with you. And we started researching it in January 2019. And here we are three years plus later. Well, books take a while, don't they? They do. And, and how did you manage it? Were you in the same cities when you were co-writing or how did you, I'm going to ask you, Eric, how did you manage that co-writing process? That's not easy always. Well, it, it was amazing because uh, a lot of it was through COVID. And, you, you know, the entire time we wrote the book, I think we only actually met in person once. That's and it right. was just wow. for, for, yeah, it was like a social lunch when I was back home in uh, British Columbia, Canada. But the entire time we, we did the writing, uh, you know, we have a process in place where uh, we'll sort of brainstorm the ideas for it. I'll take a cut at it. Paul will come back with edits and then we'll hash out the, the final version. But it, it works really well, surprisingly. Uh, really goes to show you how, um, you know, things that you, you really thought could have only been done in person, like writing a book, actually really can be done remotely. My, is, uh, surprisingly yeah, my, my view would be it was actually easier to do it that way than do it in person. Uh, one of the things hmm. is there's no commuting time, right? You just, you pick up, it's, it's eight o'clock, bang, and you start. Um, I mean, obviously it's not going to work for everyone. Uh, but I think uh, there's a lot of mutual respect that was already in place. So we had a relationship already, which right, I think was important. Right. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think we bring very different uh, skill sets, you know, to the table. Eric is highly qualified, mathematically, does great statistical research, understands technology. And I have a kind of a worldview um, from my experience in finance and, and my academic background. So that the two that skill sets meshed, I think, very nicely. Yes. And, and Paul, we've known each other for a long time. Yes. And I definitely think of you as a big picture, <laughs> cross-cultural thinker, yes. for sure. Yeah. 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 So that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. You know, your book is very timely now with what's going on, particularly, both of you are Canadian, mm -hmm. what's going on in Canada, in Ottawa, we're watching and thinking, well, it's their turn maybe for, for these kind of issues to appear. But events um, such as, you know, usually at EconView, we don't focus on political events, but political events obviously um, influence economic events. And the U.S. and Canada are each other's largest trading partners. I believe that's still true. Um, how does this how, how do you see these forces of populism that you talk about? Maybe we should start by um, asking what is populism mm -hmm. and uh, uh, define that. And then if you don't both mind talking about what, how you see things going in Canada, I think all of our listeners would be very interested in your opinions. Absolutely. So our definition of populism that we use in the book is one that is sort of a synthesis of uh, the academic literature. You know, there are lots of scholars who use slightly different angles on populism, but mm -hmm. uh, we argue that something that uh, they all have uh, in common, and this is something that other people have argued too, are two essential features. One being anti-elitism or the sense that, you know, there's some corrupt elite that is making things terrible for you know, the regular Joes of the world. Uh, and secondly, anti-pluralism, which is quite, well, almost anti-democratic in a sense. It's the idea that only my political tribe 
has the right to make legitimate political decisions and that everybody outside that tribe is excluded. That's anti-pluralism. So it's really those two things uh, together. And um, it's it's funny you mentioned the protests in, in uh, Canada right now. They've uh, you know certainly generated a lot of interest, people reaching out for uh, for things that we'd like to say about them because of the the publication of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a, a couple of things that uh, you know we think are important to consider about it. One is that it's not really wholly clear that the core of the protest actually is populism. You can think that you know there are lots of different types of anti-establishment protests that go on, uh, lots of frustration with government that can go on. But it's important to classify them into different types so that you get a sense of, of uh, what actually is happening. And, and, you know, we'll go into the substantive reasons why that's important. But to begin with, you know, the core of the Freedom Convoy protest is really people who are frustrated with COVID-19 restrictions. And we've had, you know, we've seen uh, protests about COVID-19 restrictions in other places as well, Australia, Europe. Um, and uh, people certainly are, you know, demonstrating in a way that uh, is is perhaps uh, quite dramatic. But it's not clear that that's actually the same phenomenon as the sort of thing that is associated with Donald Trump and Brexit and, you know, say Marine Le Pen in, in France. Um, now, that's sort of a definitional difference. But there's a more important substantive difference between the two. And this really gets to the heart of the book. And the heart of the book is that we're arguing that, uh, you know, sort of these disruptive populist phenomena, things that really change the national trajectory of a country so that it is unrecognizable before and after. Things like Trump, things like Brexit, things uh, like uh, Marine Le Pen nearly winning the, the French election and, and uh, the Rassemblement National winning the, uh, you know, a, a plurality of votes in France and European Parliament elections. Those sorts of things at their core are driven by 30 plus years of entrenched structural economic unfairness. And what we mean by that is that it's a system where people feel like success is rigged. They feel like success depends on family origins and elite machinations. And instead, it's, it's not what it should be. It's that, uh, you know, they don't see a system where success should fairly, uh, where success fairly depends on your actual talent and effort. And as a consequence of that, people, you know, they conclude that the rules have got to change and that they've got to be replaced with something else. Uh, And it's very important to emphasize that the situation we're seeing in Canada today is therefore completely structurally different from all the forces behind Trump and Brexit and these other just overarching populist uh, surges that happened before COVID. Uh, Because like we Mm -hmm. said, the protest in Canada at its core, um, you know, however, they're they're implementing their, their ideas. At its core, the complaint is about COVID-19 restrictions. That's a relatively acute thing. Um, and it's about it's about that specifically. Whereas if you think about the forces that led to Donald Trump, it was two generations of staggeringly low social mobility and vulnerability to economic shocks so that people felt that they couldn't get ahead with their own talent and effort. And we quantitatively show that's the case in the research behind the book. We show that low social mobility, which is a crucial type of economic unfairness, is a consistent statistical predictor of the geography of populism throughout the rich world. And importantly, other factors like income inequality and immigration and social media do not have that same relationship. And that research has been 
uh, very importantly cited by the United Nations, the European Union, the International Monetary Fund, even the man who coined the term geography of discontent, Dr. Philip McCann, uh, who's at Oxford right now, he cited that research to write that, and we quote, social mobility is the crucial indicator of populist voting. Okay. And that's definitely the the message that I took away from your book, that the key issue that you see is social mobility. Um, I'm going to push back on that a little bit later sure. before I ask Paul what his feelings are, but I don't think it's just about the vaccination or mask mandates and so forth. I think it's about values and the value in that case in the minds of those truckers seems to be, they're not talking about money at all. They're talking about what they believe is their right to choose. In other words, the value that they place on a certain kind of freedom, whether or not we think that's good for all of society or not, I think that's you know maybe how they see it. So Paul, how do you look at, at this? Well, uh, so the way Eric has laid it out, it, if you think about it as a spectrum uh, of political discontent, so, you know, what we're seeing uh, in Canada right now uh, is a very natural, you know, one-off expression uh, of frustration uh, after two years of a pandemic that, you know, for everybody, including myself, who's double vaccinated and boosted, um, right. you could feel the weight of the government on your personal freedoms. Uh, but what we're seeing in Canada is not, as, as Eric said, the long-brewing uh, populist eruptions that occurred uh, in places like the United States, uh, in the UK, uh, in France, in Italy, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, that were a function of something much deeper. And that, in our view, is economic unfairness. And it's the economic unfairness, which is captured uh, by looking at social mobility, uh, that uh, if, if and when we're right about that, uh, that it creates a very different policy prescription. You th if you diagnose the problem properly, then you're much more likely to, to put the right prescriptions in place. And one of the things that's been interesting for us is, you know, we've had immense interest in our book. Uh, it was first published in November in the UK uh, by Polity Books. Uh, Eric's our first presentation was in Paris. Uh, to Thomas Piketty. Not bad, Eric. Well, Tom, Tom well, yeah. <laughs> and to he, Thomas Piketty. Yes, Tom, Wait, Tom, Thomas Piketty. <laughs> Thomas Piketty was the host, uh, was very, wow. very gracious host. I mean, the audience had a very hard time understanding the utility of markets uh, for successful social democracy. Uh, but uh, so we were in Paris. Uh, we were invited to speak to Onward UK, which is Michael Gove's uh, think tank uh, for leveling up. Uh, Eric Bonacher, um, quite ironically, since that was the book I told Eric to read in 2011, had us at INET uh, at Oxford. Wow. Um, we've, we've done a number of book launches. Uh, most recently, London School of Economics hosted a book launch. And um, uh, Vanessa Rubio Marquez, who's uh, had a stunningly successful career in Mexico that finished as a two-year uh, period as a senator, uh, was one of the panelists. Uh, she's writing a book review for LSE. Um, we've, we're going to Rome in April. We've been invited to give a talk there. Uh, we've, we had an amazingly interesting uh, conversation with the Harvard, the Polish Harvard Book Club, which was 50 uh, Polish people who had graduated from Harvard who were pulling their hair out trying to figure out what was going on in Poland. So this great interest 
but there was zero interest in Canada. Like, you know, we send out books and you do all the things you do. <laughs> you were too soon. Well, just no one you know, was interested. Well, the last two weeks, it has really changed. And so right. Canadians are really, like you said, trying to understand what's happening. And so uh, what we've tried to do is, is root them in the research behind the book, uh, beginning with Eric's paper, which was published in September uh, 2019, that he presented at Harvard to, you know, great acclaim. Ricardo Hausman, who's his boss at the Growth Lab, you know, said really nice things. I mean, these are the top level people. Um, and so it's it's really important that people understand uh, the the depth and the importance of economic unfairness driving uh, these populist eruptions so that we come off, we, we, so we come away with a very different set of uh, prescriptions. Um, you know, uh, that's what I was going to lead into. You not only talk about the problem, you have prescriptions. Well, this is one of the things. So, so one of the things that was very interesting. So when I suggested to Eric that we should try to write this book together in January, 2019, I did what any PhD student would do. I said, we have to do a review of the literature. Um, and Eric was incredibly, incredibly powerful in that part of the process, uh, and so we spent six months uh, reviewing the literature, and we came away uh, with a sense that the conversation about uh, populism was like a kaleidoscope. Uh, there was absolutely no consistence, consistency of approach. Uh, there was very little science uh, that was uh, that was being used. Uh, but near the end of it, we started to pick up this theme uh, of the importance of fairness. Uh, and Eric can, you know, can give you a litany of, of, of people that we started to look at, that, that fairness was really this really important issue. And then he told me to go away for three months, and he was going to do the quantitative research around social mobility and look at the other explanations uh, for populism. And this led to this breakthrough paper uh, that has been cited in many places. Um, and Philip McCann, again, mm-hmm. as Eric said, was very kind. In the book. Uh, yes. And so in the book, I was very uh, I really enjoyed the example that from Lucy Kellaway. Well, uh, with her. Yeah. Students. What's interesting. That was a so, great illustration. So so it's a so Lucy, a fairness versus equality. So and, and economic equality. So, and, and so let's just for the uh, the sake of the listeners. So Lucy Kellaway is an amazing human being. She was a highly paid, highly successful financial columnist at the FT. And I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Uh, I think she was caught up, uh, you know, in some of the social challenges that were occurring in the UK to give young people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds a chance. She decided to leave the FT and teach mathematics in Southwark, I think, uh, which is just south of the of the Thames River in these uh, these um, underprivileged areas. Um, and so I've always been a big a fan of hers. And uh, she told a story of taking uh, a group of these children probably in their mid-teens, um, many of whom qualified for breakfast programs, they would come to school hungry, uh, to the most expensive penthouse in London, like 15,000 pounds a night. And quite surprised that to a person, they all said that they were really looked forward to getting rich so they could spend their money, you know, that way. Aspirational. Really, <laughs> well, and, and, that is, and, and that's a crucial part of, of our argument. Uh, we talk about fair, uh, unequal outcomes. So, uh, but in addition to that, uh, not only were we uh, dissatisfied with the research, the conversation, the writing around uh, inequality, immigration, populism, all this stuff, but we were struck by the fact that 
no one really offered any concrete prescriptions other than either let the market do everything or let's tax away all the wealth that people have and we'll go from there. So uh, I had already for many years thought about this idea of twinning equal opportunity with unequal outcomes. Um, so we had a kind of policy prescription in mind. Uh, Eric did a great job to, to build it out in the fourth chapter, creating this schematic that they're not allowed to speak to all the different bits and pieces that are required uh, to achieve economic fairness and high levels of social mobility. But one of the reasons I asked him to write the book for me was the fact that he was going to work at the Growth Lab that has a very specific methodology of looking at uh, countries uh, and the challenges they have to create, uh, perhaps not fairness, I don't want to put any words in mouth, but uh, to create successful economies. And so the prescription was very, very important part of the puzzle for us. You know, I'm wondering if there's another part of the puzzle, which is multiculturalism. So the countries that we've been talking about, Canada, the UK, um, also France, the United States are multicultural. And you don't have populism in a place like Japan, for example, Paul, that you know very well because they have one single culture. Is it possible to create equal social mobility given the different values that the different cultures might have? Does it, is it in the eye of the beholder? What is that? How do you, how do you parse that? Well, I mean, I think what we would, different yeah, I aspirations. Mean, well, let's, mm-hmm. So, so let's just put Japan aside for a second, because uh, okay. the, the fact is, is that, um, I mean, one of the things that we, we clearly argue, and Eric did a great job in his paper on this, uh, is that immigration is not a reason for populism, period. It's an amplifier. And a liberal politician will use the outgroup uh, as a way to amplify the discontent, which already exists. And it's been around for a very, very long time. Yeah, but can I just uh, interject means, there? There's yeah. a really, uh, there was even a really great uh, quote in The Economist from, you know, they did a series of interviews with uh, populist voters in East Germany. And the critical thing that they found from the interviews was that these voters really did not like the idea that they were being labeled racist. And they insisted they were not racist. But they were a little skeptical about uh, refugee flows and immigrants. And the reason why was because they what? felt like they were left behind when others, when other newcomers were being helped first. So it's, it's not fairness. It's about fairness. Exactly. Is what you're saying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yes. It's, a, it's, it's about fairness and it's, but again, it's, it's about a long standing problem, right? It's not something that just happened yesterday. Uh, I mean, for example, look at the Nordic countries. Do you want to just talk about the um, 2015 immigrant uh, crisis? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, uh, you, you know, this, this kind of goes to the point about uh, how populism can play out in different countries. And something we want to emphasize is that there's kind of a perception that populism is a binary, that you're either populist or you're not. That's really not true. It's a, it's a You're saying there's sh- there are 50 shades of popul- populism. Well, yeah, but the, the, the really <laughs> important thing is, you know, are you able to, because every society has some people with, you know, kind of anti-establishment views. And the critical question is, when a crisis hits that shakes confidence in the system, is that going to lead to some sort of, you know, completely different trajectory like Trump or Brexit that just changes the national identity of a country, the national character of a country? Or are you able to sort of, you know, manage that and get on? And the example is uh, in the Scandinavian countries was that in uh, 2015, of course, there was the European migrant crisis. And they, they had huge inflows of refugees and migrants that were unprecedented 
in those countries' histories. Uh, it, it was just enormous. And, um, you know, as, as a consequence of that, there was a, uh, a bump in the vote share for populist parties. The Sweden Democrats, for example, in national elections in Sweden, they're an anti-immigrant populist party. They got as many as one in five votes uh, at, at their height. And, uh, you know, lots of commentators said, oh, you know, this is the next, this is the next Brexit, this is the next Marine Le Pen, this is the next Trump, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, when push came to shove, it, it didn't really play out into something quite like Brexit or quite like Trump in the end. And what's more, even in the 2019 European Parliament elections, for example, Sweden and uh, Denmark respectively voted for populists at rates of just 15 and 10 percent, which was three to five times lower than in the UK and uh, Italy and France. So it shows that, you know, if you have a system of social mobility in place, it means that people don't think the entire system is rigged. So that when a crisis like a huge immigration inflow happens, people see that as a somewhat self-contained issue. And it doesn't spill over into this wider problem of uh, people thinking it's reflective of the entire society being uh, somehow rigged or unfairly balanced. Um, and of course, the, the converse has, has played out as well. You've, you've seen other places where immigration shocks uh, have led to, you know, Brexit. have been able to get, yeah, look at, look at Brexit. You know, you had uh, in the early 2000s, the accession of new European Union uh, countries, new immigrants coming into Britain, and it quickly became coupled with Britain's rock bottom social mobility. The idea that, you know, outside of London, it's really hard to get on. And it quickly became attached to this idea of, again, they're just helping newcomers while we're struggling to get by. So that's that's really the crux of it. It's that if you have a firewall against populism in the form of high social mobility and high economic uh, fairness, then these kinds of issues don't spill out beyond that uh, that self-contained problem. Mm. But there are a lot of conservatives in Britain who supported Brexit. Well, let's hold on. So let's let's let, let's step back for a second. So um, remember, remember, too, that New Zealand, Australia and Canada have the highest proportion of foreign born in their population of any high income country. I think the numbers I think Australia is 34 percent. New Zealand's 28 and Canada's 23. The UK and the United States is about 15. So where where, mm -hmm. where do the populist We're eruption just bigger? Occur? Well, mm -hmm. where did the populist eruption occurred? It occurred. It occurred in those countries. Well, why? Because of immigration? No, because there's long-growing, systematic economic unfairness that's been what's been 20, 30 to 40 years in the making. So it's very, very important to, 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 to get that multicultural immigration argument off the table and focus on the on, on the importance, the centrality of social mobility and economic unfairness as being the necessary condition for populism, period. Well, I don't know if you consider Brexit a populist movement or, or not, but very much um, so. Conservatives, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So conservatives and some very wealthy uh, people supported Brexit, and my view, looking from the outside in, was that this wasn't they. They were not being treated unfairly. They were treated. They were the privileged, right? Yet they supported it. Why is that? And I, I was thinking maybe it's more of a question of identity and national identity than it was their uh, social mobility, at least for some people. So I wonder if it's just about fairness, if it's, there's not also, also somewhere, and I'm trying to put my finger on it, I, don't, I, I really wasn't referring to immigration before. Is there something about uh, a resurgence of national identity 
that is important here. That's also a strand in the in the tapestry that you're you're weaving here of how our society is re, is being reorganized. So I mean, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of uh, conservatives voted for Brexit, and if you look at the vote shares, uh, that's right. But it's really important to figure out well where are those uh, vote shares coming from, and and mm-hmm. uh, you know if you if you actually do crunch down the data, like it's like think of the red wall areas, the massively disenfranchised areas uh, outside of London and the rest of England uh, that have been deindustrialized and see limited life opportunities, limited life expectancy, limited job opportunities. There you had huge swaths of people who uh, do traditionally vote conservative, but then voted for Brexit. And those are exactly the kinds of people who, uh, you, you know, are affected by low social mobility. To your point that, uh, you know, you, you can always find examples of people who are uh, more well off that, that uh, you know, perhaps personally weren't affected by low social mobility that would vote for Brexit. Uh, it's really important to think about the way that politics play out in terms of what factors are systematic and what factors are idiosyncratic. Because the the reality is that in any political science analysis, you have to take into the account that there are always going to be these weird outliers. Like there are always going to be uh, people who who come from a background you wouldn't expect, who just vote away because of their personal inclinations. And I'd add, of course, that many wealthy uh, conservatives were deeply opposed to Brexit. It was a huge schism within the party. So there's a huge element of uh, idiosyncrasy there. The critical thing is to look for, is there a systematic thing? Is there a systematic relationship where regardless of, uh, you know, people's sort of personal predilections, is there something that is a consistent statistical predictor of the outcome? And in in that case, you know, social mobility is, is really quite a clear answer. Okay. So social mobility, um, there are two sectors that are very important. One, of course, is education and another is healthcare. Um, how could those be improved? How could, it, it seems to me in Canada, you have access to healthcare and access to education, basically for pretty much anybody. Is that a correct assumption on my part? And therefore, you wouldn't be a candidate for um, populism. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because something that we try to do in chapter four and uh, chapter five in quite a bit of detail is we try to really emphasize that there's this, you know, there's this traditional view that social mobility really is just down to a handful of, of things. Like you say, you know, people tend to say, oh, if you want to boost social mobility, you've just got to get a better, better education system or you've just got to get a better health system. And that uh, what we really emphasize in the book is that those things are important, but there are so many other things that also play into social mobility. And you can think of those things if you imagine the life trajectory of somebody who's trying to work their way up, say, from the middle class to the working class. You know, it doesn't really matter if they become blue collar or white collar. They could be a plumber or accountant in the end. But you've got to think very carefully about what are all the things that need to happen along the way. And, uh, you know, to your credit, things like education and healthcare. Uh, being able to access early uh, early childhood uh, healthcare is really right. critical for your cognitive health uh, later in life, and being able to get an affordable education and a high quality education, not just through high school, but into uh, you know whatever form of vocational or post secondary training you see fit. Those things are really important, but that only gets you to a point where you're productive in principle. That doesn't actually get you to your final point of uh, you know successfully entering the middle class. You next have to be able to physically connect 
with areas of economic opportunity. And that's where things like housing and transport infrastructure come into play. And that's why the leveling up debate in the UK has focused so heavily on those things. You've got to be able to actually face an economy where there are plentiful job and business opportunities, whether you want to apply for jobs or start a business. And that's where having a competitive private sector, and this is something that people never emphasize when they talk about social mobility, but having a competitive private sector is absolutely essential to social mobility. Because if you don't have that in place, those economic opportunities remain theoretical. You can't start an effective career. You can't start an effective business. And you just sort of you know, languish where you are. And then you've got to be able to, uh, you know, have, have freedom from uh, discrimination, for example, through law and culture, if you're trying to compete in that market. And the way in which you compete has to be free from the influence of economic cheaters, like, uh, say, monopolists or people who undercut safety standards. And that's where things like taxation and regulation and the justice system have a role to play. So, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that Canada does very, very well. Uh, relative to other countries on health and education. That's not to say there's not room for improvement there. But there are all these different policy inputs that are relevant to social mobility that have to be considered as well. So when we think about, uh, you know, what what does uh, economic unfairness generate? It, it generates two things, low social mobility, but also high vulnerability to economic shocks. And there's some really good data that I'll ask Eric just to talk about comparing uh, the ability of Canadians to Americans to adjust to the China trade shock. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a really critical example of how these things like actually play out in practice and create economic unfairness in practice. So like uh, David O'Tour's argument. No, in the US. I, I actually, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I know him actually. He's, he's one of my old uh, professors from MIT. He's, he's a great guy. But uh, that's exactly the, the argument for those who are uh, listening. There's this um, great line of research that shows very convincingly from an econometric point of view that uh, Chinese import competition, like, you know, buying and importing goods from China led to, uh, you know, job losses uh, in the U.S. essentially. Um, and, and that thing has uh, that, that kind of analysis has been done in other countries as well. But the, uh, the really interesting point about the differentiation between the U.S. and Canada is that um, you know there's analysis by uh, another MIT professor, Daryl Natchamoglu, uh, showing that in the case of the U.S., there was no evidence, no statistically significant evidence of job recovery in the next couple of years for those people who were displaced after the China shock. And then somebody else did the analysis for Canada. The figure was 60%. So there is a huge mm-hmm. gulf. It's a huge gulf. It's a huge gulf. And you know there are really uh, it. There, there are really obvious reasons why though those kinds of things might play out so differently. In the case of the U.S., you've got, uh, you know, a really threadbare so, uh, social safety net. People don't have very good unemployment insurance. They don't have universal health care coverage. Uh, it's really expensive to retrain. And also because of the high cost of education, it means you can have these places where very few people in general are educated. And that in turn leads to a poor industrial ecosystem with few opportunities. And the reverse of that is all true in Canada. In Canada, if you get laid off, you don't have to worry about your health care sending you into medical debt, which, by the way, is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the U.S., you uh, don't have to worry as much about uh, unemployment insurance. You know, you know, you can have it for a reasonable amount of time to find a new job. Uh, you, you can actually plausibly afford uh, retraining and you can probably find more people in the community who uh, actually do have an education regardless of where you are. Right. Well, I think where Canada's disadvantage is housing costs. 
Oh, much higher. absolutely. Yeah. That's got to be for the for yeah. the younger generation. How do they hop on that bandwagon, which is the driver of wealth for most people? So, so yeah. that's something so, that I think you're disadvantaged. Yeah. At. So let yes. me so yeah. let me say a couple of things. First of all, the the way that we like to express it is that the American middle class lives over a trap door. That can be sprung by ill health, can be sprung by unemployment in a way that's different than any other high-income country, even the UK. Which is why we had the fiscal response to COVID that we did. Well, ex- that was so strong. Exactly. Yeah. That's why. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but the other thing uh, that it's very important is to to think about how the political system reacts to uh, to deep changes uh, in the economy. So one of the things we say in the book is that fairness is a moving target, and it can be and it can and and technological environmental, economic, social, uh, politically, uh, social, and, and cultural change can create all different kinds of unfairness. In the, in the last 35, 40 years, we've had tremendous technological change. Uh, the integration of China into the global economy, container traffic, and then the technological revolution that we lived through in the last 15 mm-hmm. years. The point is, Technological change creates deep changes in the economy, the structure of the economy. And the consequence is big winners and big losers. I was just going to say winners and losers. It's the responsibility of the political system to manage that. Yeah. What has not happened? Well, uh, through parliamentary democracy, through uh, putting in in, uh, programs to help people retrain. Uh, to allow them to move, to invest in public transit, all a, a number of different things. But the but the in the United States and in the UK particularly, leaders like Clinton, leaders like Tony Blair, and those that followed, embraced the neoliberal argument that the market is always right. And so, at a time of massive technological change, structural change in the economy, huge winners and huge losers, the political system didn't react in a way that mitigated that and allow people the right. chance to adjust. Now, now it's become a social and cultural problem because now you have, an, you have a, uh, a ruling class that is hereditary and, that, and, 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 and the hereditary ruling class is making a cultural argument that everything is okay because they worked harder than most other people and they deserve these outcomes. And so the failure. But they were maybe just lucky. <laughs> well, we know they're lucky. We know they're lucky. Yeah. Right. But they don't think they're lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. And they think they're smart. Uh, that, that's how it always is. Well, <laughs> but, it, but the point is, it's the political system that has to adjust. And we go into some detail in chapters two and three, uh, talking right. about, as you, as you know, from uh, how uh, Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan and that whole argument, Margaret Thatcher, has really created the intellectual framework for the failure of the political class to deal with these huge changes in the structure of the economy. And we conclude, right. we conclude uh, finally, that it's going to get much worse in the United States before it gets better. Whereas in, the, whereas in Canada, we would conclude that in fact, this episode that we're going through is not going to lead to some significant populist eruption that's going to change the country as we recognize it. In fact, in the last election, 95% of Canadians voted essentially for center-left uh, political platforms. You know, that just happened like four months ago. So, right. so this, this trap door that Americans live over, 
the the inequality that's deeply embedded uh, in the in the UK because of geography. These are deep structural problems that may or may not got dealt with for many years to come and may be highly disruptive going forward. Well, um, one of uh, my guests in November was John Mearsheimer at University of Chicago, mm-hmm. and he talked about the China shock. Um, and agree- he would totally agree with you. He said, when that shift happened, we did not do anything to retrain the people who were displaced. You're on your that own. That was our failure. You're on your own. Right. It, 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 was, it was even more than that, though. It's that you don't have unemployment insurance. You lose your health care. You can go bankrupt. And you see the actual decline in U.S. Um, longevity over this time that can be traced to some of that. You know, also another um, thing I thought about was student loans. So you have the, it seems that you have social mobility through education, but actually when you finish, you're saddled with so much debt. And now we have more student debt than we have credit card debt in this country. What I'm concerned about is the generational issues. As I mentioned, housing, how do young people get housing? How do young people who went to college and have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, how do they, what do they feel about being socially mobile? I don't think they feel very socially mobile. And actual mobility has decreased in the United States over the last 10 years since the great, um, the, uh, the great financial crisis. We've become less mobile. And that was our strength in the past, that you could just pack up and go to another place with more opportunity. That's not so easy. Well, to one, do. Of the, one of the important uh, elements of, of social mobility is, of course, it's, a, it's really a measure of, uh, of, of, of a child's uh, future income relative to their parents' income. And mm-hmm. uh, so if children are earning less than their parents consistently, um, then the aspiration changes then this idea that the system is rigged is embedded. Uh, the political class, the economic class, uh, the elite essentially have rigged the system against everybody else. Um, you've, you've got an enormous problem you have to try to overcome. Well, it seems the leadership is not, in many countries, is not in touch with, with your ideas. Well, we're working um, on it. And, <laughs> and, and I would even say Justin Trudeau, when I watched him in Parliament, you know, discuss this. I thought, you know, I don't know if that was the right approach to take to these people's grievances. Why not uh, it's, it's, go out and talk to them? Why not? Well, I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton, give them Hillary, some Hillary Clinton, you know, absolutely gave us uh, the roadmap for what you don't do. <laughs> Gordon, the, the, Gordon, the ba- it was like a basket of deplorable speech Gordon, and yeah. they're Nazis yeah. and all that. Gordon, I just Gordon, thought, Gordon Brown on a hot mic yeah. calling the woman a racist. I mean, that's buried the Labour Party for a generation. So, you uh-huh. know, Justin wasn't very wise in framing uh, his his comments the way he did. It wasn't as bad as Clinton and Brown, but it was it was close enough. And a lot of people commented. Some of them called it like Hillary Clinton moment that it's good. You know, that is once you use that kind of language with people, you can't bring them back again. They're gone. It can't bring it back. They're, they're they know gone. what you really think. That's right. Exactly. That's right. basically how they look at uh, it. But yeah. he's going to be able to get away with it because Canada has high levels of social mobility. Uh, and I would say, too, that, you know, when it comes to you talked about the freedom of the truckers, one of the things that's really being pushed back on that argument, mm-hmm. first of all, is that the freedoms they're denying a lot of other people by blocking 
transportation routes to nine, you know, the, the jobs that are being lost on both sides of the border, the terrible, terrible uh, psychological and physical damage for people in Ottawa that are close to the honking uh, of, of, of the truckers. Uh, you know, that, you know, that's, that's really speaking to, uh, you know, the fact that, that that hasn't much to do with freedom. But the other way that it's being presented is uh, to think about the community importance of getting vaccinated. And some people have talked about the blitz and the blackouts in the UK during the Second World mm-hmm. War, that uh, there was a lot of people, my mom lived through it, um, a lot of people who didn't want to, like, put the blackout curtain down, didn't like to live in the dark. But there was a general understanding that if you left one light on, that that could be uh, uh, enough of a of a sign for a, a, a bomber to drop a bomb. So you you put the you put the the blackout curtain down, and that's what these vaccines are all about. So um, this this whole freedom argument is getting chewed up pretty badly now um, because people are starting to. But understand. didn't Alberta just say that they they. Uh... Uh, ended the mandates. Well, Alberta's uh, yesterday. Sure, I mean, but you know, that's, but it's, uh, but it's important. To understand. It looks like cause and effect. Well, but a lot of from people, the outside. but a lot of people misunderstand how Canada works. I mean, the fact is, is that the, mm-hmm. the, the, right. other than, other than at the borders, the the Canadian government isn't responsible for the mandates. These are all provincial choices. Like, federal, yeah. Right. These are provincial it's a federal choices. System. Yeah, it's just exactly like the U.S. Like the United States, right? So. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I just I wonder if this idea that um, social mobility, what that's really about is having hope in the future. So I just wonder if um, leadership isn't a really critical part of that. Yes, you can see that you can do things and 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 improve your lot in life. But I it, it seems to me that what another piece that's missing is the leadership, the political class being in touch with the, uh, with the feelings of most people, which is what we found out in 2016, they were not. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why the title of the book is Reclaiming Populism. It's that people mm-hmm. out there, they have very real frustrations about two generations of entrenched economic unfairness and low social mobility. And there's no you know, reason in principle why that has to go in some anti-pluralist, illiberal direction. If mainstream politicians can recognize that instead of demonizing those voters, and figure out, uh, you know, how to be on their side and how to construct a solution. That can be a, a much more positive experience, not only because it avoids going down the path of Trump, but because it makes society a fairer place where people do have more hope and people feel that they, you know, can get ahead on their talents and effort and get what they deserve. Yeah, the messaging is important and it's not there. Yes. Well, it's, and that's yeah. absolutely right. But the tools have to be there too. You, yeah. You've got, you've yeah. got to, you know, equal, equal opportunity and fair, unequal outcomes. Uh, these are really, really, th- th- these have to be in place. You can do all the messaging you want if those things don't exist. And Paul, you know what, maybe you can give an economic explanation. Why is it important for everybody to have opportunity? It, it's obvious it, re- it results in greater wealth overall. Well, it was interesting GDP, because, because Eric, Eric was asked a question um, during a Harvard uh, book launch. Uh, whether or not social mobility created um, uh, populism. In other words, people were seeing other people who perhaps weren't the same color and the same religion being successful, and they felt really bad. And his answer was, social mobility is not a zero-sum game. I mean, the whole point is, is, to, make, is, to, is to expand wealth, expand opportunity. Uh, I always like to talk about the table getting bigger. And in my lifetime, 
um, you know, the the um, visible uh, presence of of women in in leadership positions of you know non uh, white uh, Canadians in important positions in the economy, uh, in, in leadership positions. The t- I always think of it as a table growing, that you get more and more people at the table. And that's what you're trying to do with social mobility, give everyone a chance that, yeah, I got a chance to sit at that table too. And really importantly, now as a grandfather, right, that your mm-hmm. that your kids and their kids have the chance. So many people, that's really what they hope. That their that their kids and their their kids' kids that they're going to have a chance to be at that bigger table, and that's what social mobility is all about. And where it doesn't exist, it's it's devastating. It's devastating. So I think you've given a wonderful description of where we are now, and also explained how we got there over the past three decades, at least. Uh, I'm going to ask you to prognosticate. <sighs> what do you both think will happen? And the U.S. in particular, there is widespread thinking that perhaps we could have a civil war in the United States. And this is not an outlandish statement to make anymore here, although it's hard to imagine how that would would actually work in practice. But um, what do you think is going to happen in what we know it's going to happen in 2022 here, but in 2024 in the U.S., which way could it go? Where would you like to see things going in the United States, at least. Well, the, the answer of uh, to where we would like to see things go is a lot easier than where we think things will go. So, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll say, uh, of course, we, we don't have a crystal ball, but we're we're, re- we're really worried about uh, some countries, the U.S. in particular, and we're really we're really worried about the U.S. in particular uh, because it does have just such huge institutional gridlock. It's really hard. Um, you know, to actually get things done or even to convey a consistent uh, message because of the, you know, the presidential system creates this huge incentive for there to be uh, only two parties because it's so winner takes all. And that means you, you can't have a consistent message from either party. It makes it very, very hard to go out and campaign and to implement policy that's actually going to make things better. So we're very worried about that. Uh, in, in terms of what we would like to see happen, uh, we, we set out in chapter five of the book a set of diagnoses for the U.S., the U.K., Italy, and France about what are the top constraints that hold back social mobility and hold back economic unfairness in each of those countries. And, uh, and for any policymakers who are uh, listening, that's a really relevant chapter. We use methodology. It's the diagnostic methodology from the Harvard Growth Lab, where I work, to identify those things quantitatively and concretely. And in the case of the U.S., uh, you know, it's it's something that a lot of people recognize, but there's not the political will to do it necessarily. It, you know, you, you've mentioned earlier that education and healthcare are really critical. In the case of the U.S., those actually probably are the biggest problems that hold back social mobility today. It's that people can't really easily afford to get an education, and the leading cause of personal bankruptcy is medical debt. So if you lose your job and if you lose your health coverage and you get sick, it can be very, very hard to recover. It can cut off your future opportunity completely. So I, I can only hope there will be reform in that direction. Paul, what do you think? I, you know, when, when we, well, when we think about, um, you know, the risks for the U.S. and what has to change, uh, the, the, the challenge with the U.S. is that the, the problems towards trying to free up um, uh, social mobility to make the country fair uh, economically, there's huge cultural impediments against it. And cultural impediments take a much longer period of time to fix 
than the, and technological right. economic, right? So you've got technology, the economy, political system, social and cultural. The cultural problems in the United States uh, are deeply rooted in a few things. First of all, the myth of the rugged individual that can get ahead on their own and achieve the American dream. Uh, it's not true. Uh, the, 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 the time of the greatest social mobility in the United States between 1945 and 1970 was when the state was very active in creating the GI Bill, housing, transportation uh, investment, and when the tax, the marginal tax rate was 90%. That, that's when the middle class, uh, that was the golden age for the American middle class. Uh, the second cultural problem is that uh, race and government spending are fused in the minds of many people. So when you go to spend a dollar uh, of public money, Unfortunately, a lot of times the response is, well, that's just to help black people or that's just to help Hispanics rather than seeing as something that empowers everyone and lifts everybody up. That's a deep, deep cultural reality in the United States, which doesn't exist in many other countries. The, 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 the more near term problem uh, is that the, one of the mainstream political parties have become anti-democratic, <laughs> uh, where there is a there is a big buy in that elections are rigged, that there's a corrupt political class, a corrupt uh, mainstream media. Uh, and when one of your mainstream political parties uh, takes that point of view, it becomes very hard to deal with some of these very difficult structural issues around economic policy with any degree of efficiency. Uh, and then the Final point is just the reality of the dis economic dislocation that's occurred in the United States for the last 40 years and the inability of the political system to do anything about it, how dislocated the United States is. Just go to any American city, go to San Francisco, go to Philadelphia uh, and see the homeless people on the street, the open drug use, people defecating, uh, on the, uh, you know, too much. Crime, crime. Well, you, oh, you yeah. Pick, uh, high, I live in Chicago. High, yeah, yeah. High, <laughs> I sometimes hear gunshots. High, <laughs> high incarceration rates. You know, you name it. So right. there's a there's mm -hmm. a there's been a huge breakdown. There's been a breakdown right. in the United States, and it's not easily fixed. And hope and and you know it's gonna it's gonna take uh, great leadership. It's gonna take great intelligence. It's gonna take great discipline, and I think a lot of luck for America to reclaim a lot of what's been lost. But I think the cultural problems are what's going to make it very difficult. And quite frankly, as a Canadian, it's very concerning for a Canadian mm -hmm. to, to think about a United States that could go in that kind of direction. And for example, student loans, there has been, we've, we've had a democratically controlled uh, Congress, but there hasn't been any, although that was a campaign promise, we haven't been able to. But even, to even that, that I mean, the, the, the you know, they didn't have the votes in the Senate. The, the two Democrats aren't Democrats; they're Republicans. Let's let's face it. So, yeah. So, so what you two are saying is that we need to to change our system to a parliamentary democracy in order to stop the well, gridlock. Uh, <laughs> is that your recommendation? Well, I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to you know, say anything <laughs> that specific, uh, but I I will say that there is a lot of institutional gridlock in the United States. Uh, part of it, uh, you know, part of it is cultural. Part of it is due to institutional design. I hope people will come up with uh, creative ideas on, on how to solve that. Yes. Well, this has been a pleasure talking Thank to you. you, Paul and Eric, meeting you. 
Um, I really um, uh, can't recommend your book highly enough. It's very thought, whether whether you agree with everything in it or not, it's highly thought provoking and it touches on things that everybody is concerned about, both in Canada, the US, and I'm sure the UK. Um, again, the book is called Reclaiming Populism, New Economic Fairness, can, can, how new economic fairness can win back disenchanted voters. And we'll see what happens with those voters in November. Uh, it's, I, I think I know what's going to happen, but we'll, we'll see how all of this plays out. How can everybody follow you other than your book? Where can they find you? Do you have Twitter accounts? Can you, a website that they can go to? We're, we're both on uh, LinkedIn as well as Twitter. So feel free to uh, connect with us on either of those things. Just search for our names, Eric Protzer or Paul Somerville. That's wonderful. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll, we look forward to your next book. Do you have something that you're thinking up as a follow-up? This has been, you've, you've really, I think, hit the, the exact mood right now with this book. So I'm very interested in what you're thinking about next steps. Well, the book that uh, we've, been, we've been talking about uh, is called uh, Protest, Riot, Revolution, Why Politics Becomes Violent. Ooh. That, okay, that makes me slightly worried about the future since you guys are <laughs> <laughs> see are ahead of the curve. But but quite frankly, we're, but look forward to okay, it. Okay, well, quite frankly, we're so busy now marketing this. I don't know if we're going to have time for a couple of years, so we'll see. <laughs> That's just wonderful. Thank you, and thank Thanks, you to Sarah. the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible. Our managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Larry.